there is a throne around which the cherubim and the seraphim are flying right now, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it is that throne that we worship at this morning. It is a throne above the presidency. It is a throne above the Kremlin. It is a throne above anything that China or Australia or the, or the Japanese or the Brits or the Italians can put together. It is above everything on this earth. It is the throne of God, and it is to that throne that we bow our knees. Amen? All right. Well, that's what he asked me to do, right? <laughs> Gosh, you wouldn't know I grew up in Indiana with that, would you? That was a slam on Indiana, okay? Oh, you guys. Suffering draws us to God. Let's hope that the sermon this morning isn't an example of how suffering can come unexpectedly into your life. There was a man who went to see an ophthalmologist recently. Uh, probably in his late 60s, and he, uh, he uh, <laughs> took off his glasses, sat in the chair, and they put those contraptions around his eyes like you know that, that they do, and the doctor says, why don't you start reading the chart from the top down? And he goes, L, W, E, F, G, looks like an X. And then he stopped. Doctor took a few notes, closed his notebook, and started to leave. The man says, um, "What's? How, how did I do? What? You know? What? Do you have any feedback for him?" And he goes, "Well, those were numbers, not letters. <laughs> you might see things a little bit differently this morning, but as we open up the Word of God, let's remember." that the, one of the four characteristics of the Word of God is the clarity of Scripture. You have the necessity, the sufficiency, the inerrancy, and the clarity of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are entirely clear. They are clear enough that you don't need a seminary degree in order to get the plain meaning of what the Scriptures talk about. The clarity of Scriptures. And this morning what we're going to do is to take a look at suffering. Now, uh, we'll show this later on after, uh, between services, but if you do want a copy of the slide deck that you're going to see this morning, you can get them at my blog site at bibleandbusiness.com at the download section. I'll be posting them this afternoon. They're not up there right now, so if you have wireless and you're trying to get them right now, they're not there. Okay. Uh, probably the opening verse that we have for this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, we're going to be in a lot of different texts this morning. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this verse is more of a context for what we're going to talk about this morning in terms of suffering drawing us to God. But there is an equation here, is there not? And the equation is very simple. God prepares us, and while he's preparing us, he's over here preparing the work for us to do. 
And at a timing of his choosing, not ours, he brings the two of them together and the kingdom is advanced. And you get blessed in the process. Right? And God is glorified in the process. Now, if you're anything like me, and I pray that you're not, but if you are anything like me, we like to imagine ourselves doing a great work for God. Right? And in our American way of thinking, we believe that our talents and our abilities are what we have to offer to God in good heavens. We all have some, don't we? And sometimes in our arrogance, we think we have more than what we actually have. But I would like to suggest this morning that who you are, who we are, determines more our success in doing God's work than our brains and our talents and our skills. By the way, just out of curiosity, who gave us our brains, talents, and skills? Yeah, right. That's why Deuteronomy 8, you know. He gives you the ability to create wealth. So if you have a lot of money, why do you think it's all about you? Right? We are God's workmanship. You see, in this equation, we like to talk about God preparing the work and us moving out and doing great things for God. But we kind of tend to skip over the fact that we are his workmanship. He's working on us. And in him working on us, He has a particular method that he uses. You see, he works on us through suffering to draw us to himself so that we enjoy an open and vibrant relationship with him while he uses us in the advancement of his kingdom. That's a summary of what the scriptures teach on suffering. Read it again. He works on us through suffering to draw us to himself so that we enjoy a deep and open and vibrant relationship with him while he uses us in the advancement of his kingdom. You know what? He worked on our forefathers too. Did you know that? Consider Moses. Remember Moses, Ten Commandments. Oh, Moses. Remember that? Son of a Hebrew slave, he would live for his first 40 years in the palace of a king. And after killing an Egyptian who was torturing and killing uh, another Hebrew slave, uh, he knew himself, him to be Hebrew, and so he fled to Midian. And there he learned to live a very simple lifestyle. And I believe that he suffered during those 40 years because he was a wanted man. The Bible says that Pharaoh wanted to kill him. How many times have the great uh, characters and, and, and the great people of our faith, the powers that be, wanted to kill them? Happened with Joseph, happened with Moses, happened with Jesus, happened with David, right? And but one day he would stand before God at the burning bush and receive a call to further God's kingdom, a call that was purposeful and powerful and pivotal and personal. And through his 40 years of suffering in the desert, he got to know God so well that he was called a friend of God. 
and he learned the lessons that he needed, and God prepared him to go do the work of extracting the Israelites from Egypt and leading them out. Do you remember that? Suffering, preparation, a relationship with God, and he was led in to do a mighty work. Consider David, anointed by, by uh, Samuel to be king. I'm guessing at around 15 years of age, give or take, some think it was 12, some think it was a little bit later. And for the next 20 years after he defeats Goliath, Saul becomes very jealous of him, and David ends up being on the run for, I'm guessing, roughly 20 years, 15 years, somewhere in there. And Saul purposefully and continuously wanted to kill him. And David is amassing a, a growing band of <laughs> what they call discontented people around him, those who are in debt, <laughs> constantly on the run. And during that time, he learned 17 lessons on leadership that he had to learn before he could lead the children of Israel. And at the same time, he learned how to connect with God. And David grew to become known as the man who was after God's own heart. God used suffering to prepare him to, for a great work of leading the nation of Israel while drawing him to himself at the same time. But not to be outdone by either one of them, Jesus Christ himself was born in a stable to common parents. He would grow in favor with God and man. He would enter public ministry at the, roughly the age of 30. And we estimate that his ministry lasted roughly three years. Yet the religiously serious of their day would come to despise him. They hated him with a visceral hatred. He was betrayed, he was sold, he was abused, and he was ultimately murdered for his obedience to God. And, th and yet, we know that uh, one, one verse in Luke says that he grew in favor with God and man. He grew in favor with God. He got to know God. In his humanity, he developed a relationship with God that no one else has ever had. <laughs> and through his death and burial... In resurrection, tens of millions have come to know God personally and have the assurance of eternal life. A.W. Tozer once wrote, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, if we're honest, we're going to say, Well, I'd like to be used by God. I want to, do, I want to be a part of this of, of what God is doing, and I want to help God fulfill his agenda on this earth, but, and, and, and I might be willing to suffer some, but quite frankly, if we're really honest, we'd rather determine the time, <laughs> the method, <laughs> the intensity, right? Because in, in, our, in our own nature, we honestly believe that it's our keen abilities, it's our grand insights that are what is of value to God. And God says No. I got those anyways. I gave them to you in the first place. And the truth is, we want to be able to do great things for God, but we don't often want to go through the process and the pain and the joy of getting to know God deeply and intimately as part of that. You know, we, frankly, we'd rather turn on the TV. We'd rather go to the Vikings game. I know, Vikings, I know. 
um, we'd rather go to the Twins game, the Chanhassen, something like that, right? A lot of folks who call themselves Christians do not take the time to know intimately the one that they are purportedly serving. You know, if I asked you to, to take on um, a particular task in my company, and I were to say, um, um, uh, I want you to go do A, B, and C, and my intent is that you accomplish these three things, and you're probably going to encounter roadblocks along the way, and you'll have to figure out how to get around them. And there's a, there's a necessary element of you getting to know me in order to know what really needs to happen. If we don't take time to get to know God then how can we ever know what he really wants? And more to the point, how can we know what his heart is and how can we reflect his heart to a lost and dying generation? The answer is you can't. Right? So why does God use suffering to prepare us for work in his kingdom? I would postulate that the reason he uses suffering to prepare us for work in his kingdom is because that's how he prepared Jesus Christ. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. If you have a Bible, you're, willing to, you're welcome to turn there. I'm just going to read it here. We'll have it up on the slides as well. For this reason, Christ had to be made fully like us. I'm changing the words a little bit so you get the context. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you ever thought of temptations as a form of suffering? I was thinking about this. It seems to me that a temptation is oftentimes uh, Satan's way of getting us to fulfill an urge inside of us in an illegitimate way. We want justice, so we gossip. We want to be loved, so we engage in pornography. And the list can go on and on and on here, right? For those who persistently and consistently resist temptation, you'll find that it's not a pleasant experience. You, there is a form of suffering there that goes on. Hebrews 5.8, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, don't take that morally, take that in the sense of completeness, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. Jesus Christ had to learn obedience in his humanity through suffering. Now, this is a mystery because Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Colossians says that God was well pleased to have all, the Greek word is panta there, all his fullness dwell in Christ. So all of the fullness of God was placed inside of Jesus Christ, and yet he was fully human. We went over this last week in the sunrise class. 
at 8.15. He is fully human and fully God, but in his humanity, he had to learn obedience, and he learned it through suffering. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now look at this. Watch this. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of sharing in his sufferings. A disciple of Jesus Christ who is actively pursuing God understands that there are times when they are going to be fellowshipping. They're going to be sharing in the same sufferings that Christ shared in when he was on this earth. Christ was rejected. We will be rejected. Christ suffered when he was tempted. We will suffer when we are tempted. Christ had to speak truth, and by speaking truth, he knew he was going to get pummeled when he was standing before the high priest. The day will come when God will ask you to speak truth, and you will know full well that by doing that, you are going to suffer. This is not a time for weak-kneed Christianity. If you don't think the persecution is coming, you better think again. It is coming to these shores if it isn't here already. And the time to make the decision as to whether you will stand up for Jesus Christ is now, not when the persecution starts. Because if you wait till the persecution starts, you will run away and you'll never come back. You better get to know Jesus Christ now. Clean out your life now. Learn to love him now and learn how much he loves you now. I love y'all. Some of you more than others. There's a paradox here in Philippians 3. We win when we suffer. We connect with God when we suffer. (laughs) Now, there's probably a few of you sitting here going, yeah, I I really don't want to sign up for a team that's going to ask me to suffer unless I know they're going to win, right? Right? And that, frankly, is the difference between being a disciple of Jesus Christ and being a fan of the Minnesota Vikings, right? Oh, that was a good joke. You guys missed that entirely. You guys completely missed it. That was a good joke. Because you know that the Vikings will always break your heart, right? You know that. But you know that if Jesus Christ breaks your heart, he is going to come around and rebuild it and strengthen it and make it better. Right? He he may break your heart, but he will have it in the palm of his hand and he will make it better. How many of you have had your heart broken? I have. I have. How many of you have seen God rebuild your heart and make it better? How many of you have had sin in your life? And like David, you in Psalm 51, you have said, God, create in me a clean heart, and God has done it. Anybody? He's done that for me. The rest of you should have raised your hands. 
Love y'all. Love, 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 love. Do you hear how Christ is our suffering king? Do you hear that? Can you see God on a donkey riding into Jerusalem in the Passion Week? Can you see, you know, think about this, God on a donkey. Obama and Bush and all the rest ride in these armored cars. Our God rides on a donkey. Right? It's the paradox of the king who serves. The one who is majesty suffers. It's a paradox that only Christianity has. The Muslims don't have this. Do you think the Muslims stand up and say, Allah serves you and suffers for you? Heavens, no. That's an anathema to them. They don't do that. We used to sing a song back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that captures our suffering king. The lyrics go like this. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience to death on a cross, suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice, and as they crucify, praise Father forgive. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible, in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. This is your God. Amen? Our king, our suffering king, is a suffering savior who understands our plights and our struggles. He has been there. He has been where you are today. And yet, it's not enough. He wants to produce something in us. The victory that he wants to produce in us is outlined for us in several different passages. In James 1, chapter 2, through verse 4, James writes, consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance needs to finish its work, excuse me, so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Oh, my. Now, that word finish implies that there's a time element here. For some of us, our sufferings last a few hours. Some of us a few days. Some of us a few weeks, months. And for some of us a few years. You know? I remember uh, I played uh, varsity basketball in Indiana. Grew up in Indianapolis. Three years of varsity ball. You wouldn't know it by looking at me today, but I was actually a small forward. I'd take on guys like Abe and I about rebound them every time. Right? Although Abe's so much stronger, he just kicked me out of the way. But um, I don't know if you ever did this, but in Indiana, a lot of times the coaches, the first few practices, they don't have balls. And you walk on the court and you're going, where are the balls? And the coach goes, there's no balls. 
Yeah, but this is basketball. Yeah, we know. Get on the line. Oh, crap. It's time to run. Go-go after go-go. Killer after killer. Monkey drill after monkey drill. Defense after defense, moving your feet, constantly moving your feet, building up the endurance. We were a high school of 241 kids. My graduating class had 63. We played against high schools that had between 500 and 1,000 kids. We could not afford to not last all four quarters. We had to be better than them. We had to be better conditioned. <coughs> and frankly, we had to be better at a lot of things. Yeah, I'm losing it here, aren't I? So we would practice and practice and condition and condition, and we would go through suffering and pain. 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 But the reason that we did that is because the time to learn to win the championship game. The time to learn how to dribble the basketball and to run your drills and to know how to play defense is not in the fourth quarter of the championship game. The time to do that is two months before the season starts. Right? The testing produces in us perseverance. It produces in us a maturity, a maturity that we would not have otherwise. And that maturity helps lead to completeness. And the maturity is about our relationship with God and us finally kind of clearing out the garbage in our life and understanding what God's agenda is here. And understanding what God's heart is for us and for the situation. Our affections begin to change, you see. Our affections begin to change as we learn to love what God loves. As we learn to think how God thinks, as we learn to hate what God hates, that's the type of maturity that suffering produces in us. You go to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the troubles we experienced. And he goes through what they are, and we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Suffering produces in us a reliance on God that you will not get any other way. I think of Hezekiah. Do you remember Hezekiah? Surrounded by Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. And uh, I won't go into all the details, but basically Sennacherib sends him a letter and says, basically you're a dead man and all your people are going to be enslaved. And Hezekiah doesn't have an army to face the over 185,000 warriors that the Assyrians had have built to surround Jerusalem. So what does Hezekiah do? Does anybody remember? He takes the letter and he goes into the temple of God and he spreads the letter out and he gets on his knees and he cries out to God. He had no place else to go. He had no other resource. He literally gets on his knees and says, Oh, God! Only you can fix this. <coughs> Some of you are there today. Some of you, you open up your checkbook and you realize through fault of your own or maybe through no fault of your own, either way, you're in a position where only God can fix this. You have a marriage on the rocks and you're looking at it and you're going, only God can fix this because right now I do not like that person. And it's going to take God to change my heart. 
You might have an employer or a coworker that you're just befuddled with. You just don't know what to do with them. And no matter what you try to do, they just get progressively worse against you. Only God can fix that. You might have a son or a daughter who is, who is going away from the Lord or is in bondage to drugs or alcohol or sex or something like that. Only God can fix that. Have you ever been in the position where only God could fix it? I remember one time, uh, Kathy and I were in the envy, uh, this person described it to us this way. He literally said to us, well, you are now in the enviable position where only God can fix it. And I remember thinking at the time, I'd rather not be here. I'd rather not, thank you very much, all things being equal. I'd rather be in control. 2 Corinthians 4 17 and 18, on top of the total reliance on God, it says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs anything we're experiencing here. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. You see, whatever sufferings we have today, Paul calls them momentary and light afflictions. That's how Paul puts it. And he's not trying to minimize it. He's just saying, compared to the eternal reward that you get for persevering, for becoming complete, for totally relying on God, that eternal reward far outweighs anything that you're going to go through here. Now, look, it's easy for me to stand here and say this, right? Because I'm not Pastor Saeed, who's been in a prison camp for two years in Iran right now, where ISIS now has guards. I'm not him. My life isn't in danger right now, today, and neither is yours. There's over 300 Christians in Iran who are in concentration, the equivalent of concentration camps, simply because they are Christians and they will not deny Jesus Christ. Our momentary and light afflictions. What do we lack? An eternal perspective, God's perspective. When you put it together, suffering produces in us perseverance, maturity, an eternal perspective, God's perspective on our lives, total reliance on God. In other words, we move towards complete completeness, if I can put it that way. Okay? But suffering can push you away, too. Suffering can push you away. Matthew 13, 18 to 23. This is uh, Christ explaining the four soils in the parable of the sower. And I won't go into the whole thing other than to say in the second soil, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they have no relationship with Christ, they have no real solid belief system, It lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. You see, not all suffering will drive us to God. Suffering will reveal what's in our heart, and if our heart's desire is to know God, then the suffering will draw us to him. But if our desire is just to play at this Christianity thing, you know, 
You do the Thanksgiving thing. You do the, Christ, or the Christmas thing. You do the Easter thing. You do the youth group thing, right? You do all the things. But it's not really something that you believe. Then you'll fall away. You'll fall away. Some reject God. Some get so confused that they walk away from faith. Some conclude God isn't big enough to handle it. Some conclude that God doesn't exist. And, you know, look, it's a legitimate question. If God is so big and great and powerful, then why all the suffering and the evil in the world? It's a great question. And I can't answer it in full here, but the macro answer is, this is earth, not heaven. In heaven, everything will be perfect. On this earth, it is not. You see, heaven really is the complete and total presence of God with no evil. By contrast, hell is the complete and total presence of evil without the presence of God or anything good. What do we have here on earth? We have both. We have both here. We have the war going on here. And we, like Job, oftentimes are the pawns in that chess game between God and Satan. Okay? You loving it, living it, breathing it? Yes, Bill. Good. Now... Let's not expect heaven to be on earth. Heaven's in heaven, earth is earth. But at one day in the future, God will create a new heaven, and he'll create a new earth, and guess what? Everything will be perfect, and that'll be a good time, right? And if you know Jesus Christ, you're going to be a part of that. Annie Johnson Flint was born in Vineland, New Jersey in 1866. Many of you don't know her. Before she was 10 years of age, she would lose both of her parents. She and her sister would be shuttled over to another family that didn't want them, be shuttled to a third family that did want them, but by her early 20s, both of those parents would be gone as well. In her early 20s, she was, became a school teacher and started to develop arthritis, and it came on very suddenly. And over a few years, she became a complete invalid. Her sister was unable to support her. And from the time she was in her early 20s until the time she died at age 66, she lived a penniless, invalid, familylessness life. But she had faith in God, and she had a gift for writing poetry. And out of her suffering... She wrote hundreds of poems and hymns. And some of you will recognize this. This is one that we used to sing when I was a boy growing up. Those of you who remember hymns will, will probably remember this. Out of her suffering, she wrote this. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of resources, when our strength has failed, 
even though the day is only half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. You know what? His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Your suffering cannot be stronger than God's love for you and his ability to give to you the strength and the perseverance and the endurance that you need in order to live blamelessly before him during it. He loves you so very much. And he doesn't send the suffering into your life in order to punish you or to step on you, but to build you up and to get you ready for the work that he has for you. Some of you are going through really tough times. Physical, financial, reputational, relational. There's a purpose to your suffering. He wants to build into you maturity, an eternal perspective, perseverance and endurance, complete reliance on him, and a deep personal relationship with him. You know what? Most of us, I'm almost done. Give me two more minutes. Most of us, when we're going through the crucible, what do we ask God for? What do we really ask God for? If we're honest, what do we ask God for? Take it away. Take it away. Get rid of it, God. I don't want this anymore. Just, I need pain relief. And you know what? Tylenol's not doing it for me. Right? And I go to the doctor, and the Prozac doesn't do it for me. And I go to the doctor and the other drugs don't work. You know what? The right thing isn't to ask God to have it taken away. The right thing is to say, God, teach me everything that you have for me to learn during this. And don't take it away until you're done working on me. Mature me. Show me your heart. Get me in touch with you in ways that I have never had before. And oh God, please let me know your love and your faithfulness and your goodness. That's what the disciples of Jesus Christ for, asked for. Minnesota Vikings fans asked for a new quarterback. The disciples of Jesus Christ asked for something far different. May you find in Jesus today all that you need to know how he wants you to change and to get ready for the work that he has for you. Let's pray. In the scriptures, God, you ask us to simply to be still and know that you are God. In the scriptures, you have said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Father, I ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, sweep across this church and minister to those who are hurting and call them to yourself in such a way that they are radically changed and put on fire for you 
so that they go to the workplace and they go to their homes and they go to their offices blazing for you in spite of their sufferings. It's in your name that I pray, amen.